Welcome to Something Crunchy. Tyler is homies with Blake. Blake is the older bro of Blair. Blair is married to Tyler and is a slutty slut slut. Welcome to Something Crunchy. What the hell is crunchy? Welcome to Something Crunchy. Welcome to another special edition episode of Something Crunchy. I am Cullen Blake. With me as always, Blair and Tyler Dressel. Tonight we are talking to the Russell Schwartz. He is currently the president of the Pandemic Marketing Corporation, which provides strategic marketing, theatrical distribution, ancillary placement solutions, and digital execution for the motion picture industry. He is also the lead marketing professor at the Dodge College of Film and New Media at Chapman University, as well as a member of the faculty at the American Film Institute. From 1992 to 1999, he was president of Gramercy Pictures and oversaw the marketing of Four Weddings and a Funeral, Fargo, The Usual Suspects, The Big Lebowski, Dazed and Confused, Dead Man Walking, and several others. After that, he was president of USA Films and released such movies as Traffic, Nurse Betty, Topsy Turvy, Being John Malkovich, and Pitch Black. Then, from 2001 to 2008, he was president of theatrical marketing at New Line Cinema, where he oversaw all of the company's marketing efforts, which resulted in over 44 Academy Award nominations and billions of box office dollars. Some of the films he managed and created marketing campaigns for included The Lord of the Rings Trilogy, Hairspray, Wedding Crashers, Elf, Rush Hour 2 and 3, The Notebook, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, About Schmidt, and many more. In 2013 and 14, he was president of Worldwide Marketing at Relativity Media and was responsible for the entire slate, including The Family, Don John, and Beyond the Lights. Please welcome President of Pandemic Marketing, Mr. Russell Schwartz. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you, Mr. Schwartz? I am very good, thank you, on a Friday afternoon, sunny Los Angeles. <laughs> so are you, you guys in LA too? Are you on the West Coast? No, we are in Phoenix, same time zone as you right now. Okay. So you've been spending your pandemic in LA? Uh, pretty much, um, yeah. I didn't, um, you know, between uh, my duties at Chapman, which have been pretty interesting, you know, teaching Zoom classes all the past year, um, sure. as well as an enormous amount of faculty meetings, which somehow seem to be much longer than they were when you do them in person. Right. <laughs> so a full year of teaching over Zoom, that's got to be challenging. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's so interesting because I, I actually have to, I, I live up in uh, sort of northern LA area and um, it takes me about an hour to drive down to Chapman. And that is nowhere near as tiring as teaching a class for three hours online. That's really. You know. I was actually going to say you know, you're, only you're, it's an a hour much commute in LA. That's not bad at all. Well, I, I, I've arranged my classes accordingly, so I go out in the middle <laughs> in the middle of the day, and I I come back late at night. I can speed on the five coming home, so like everybody else does. So. <laughs> Well, we are passionate about both movies and marketing around here. This is a yeah. real treat for us. Uh, I certainly want to get into your career, marketing, and all of that, but let's start with your background. You obviously have a background in business, but did you grow up a movie buff at all? Um, I actually came to movies a little later when I was in um, college and right after that. Um, one of my first jobs was I was running a movie theater in Manhattan where I, where I grew up. I actually grew up in Queens, but lived in Manhattan during, you know, throughout the late 70s into the 80s. Oh, that's awesome. Um, that's cool. Uh, it, yeah, it was a pretty cool time. It was called the Regency Theater. And this was right before the um, the DVD craze happened when, you know, everything sort of went to VHS and then okay. DVD, which is sort of like late 70s. So um, we had a really interesting opportunity in the mid-70s to curate a lot of movies that were sort of sitting in the studio vaults and some of them even nitrate which of course you're not supposed to air yes. a show because they blow up they blow up in the theater highly flammable but you know we got we became friendly with some of these um film shippers and between my theater the regency and a theater in boston called the orson wells cinema and another theater in uh, san francisco called the surf we um we sort of created festivals together that we you know and then sort of moved the prints around from one city to the other and it was incredibly successful. I mean, you know, I would, we would come up with festivals like, you know, Murder, Mystery, Mayhem, and show all the great movies from oh, the wow. 30s, 40s, that. and 50s. So awesome. Yeah. And, you know, not only was it a great experience for me as a, as a film lover, because uh, I, I ended up managing the theater and booking it, so I was there like 12 hours a day, um, but also being able to um, do all that research. And, you know, I really just booked the movies that I didn't see. 
even in school. And, you know, it, it worked and they were very, very successful. And even after the VHS things started happening, the theater was so well established that um, it, it had a very successful run for about seven, five, six years. And then the people who owned the theater decided they wanted to go more commercial. So I think the first movie that, that they took away, the first uh, period that they showed them a movie, which was not a, um, a sort of a wonderful old Hollywood movie, was uh, The Exorcist. And that was oh, it. Yeah. But they saw how much money they made on The Exorcist. So, so you, toast. you were there for <laughs> the release of The Exorcist, like a, a, from a theater perspective? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So is it true what everyone says, that people were leaving the theater vomiting and running out Freaking screaming out. in terror? Is, there was, is, is there was a lot of that, you know. Oh, there was a really? lot of that. Linda, Linda wow. Blair did her number. There's no Linda question Blair about it. Linda you know. Blair was. Killed it. I mean, no pun like no other. Wow. Well, that's awesome. Well, you know, it was the first one. And, you know, when, whenever you're at the forefront of something that you, that you create, and I don't know whether they had any idea what they had, but, you know, they certainly found out really quickly. <laughs> yeah. well, that's a fun fact. <laughs> so what were some of your favorite films from that era when you were when you were working there? Oh, it was mostly, um, I think I was much more into the noir movies. That was oh. sort of where I was, I liked them. I, I mean, yeah, obviously Hepburn and all that, Tracy Hepburn movies. Um, we did a oh, whole yes. series on them. We played every one of them. Um, let's see what else we had. Then we did, you know, a lot of adventure, a lot of the classics, Lawrence of Arabia. But yep. it was just, um, it was a really good time. And, you know, at that point in Manhattan, it was really interesting period. Upper West Side of Manhattan was yeah. really booming. Such a fun and, place um, to be during that time, doing what yeah, you're doing. Yeah, and it was also three blocks from Lincoln Center, so it all sort of oh. tied into itself. Wow. So fun. Did you always want to work in show business? No, I just sort of backed into that. I mean, I, uh, I you know, I, gra- I back in when I graduated college, it was a philosophy major. And um, a friend of mine, you know, was the one who um, told me about this theater, and I went and talked to the owner, and uh, I said, yeah, I've got some ideas. And I said, look, let's give it a shot. And then after that ended... Um, I ended up running a theater down in uh, on 42nd Street called the Bijou, which was a theater that played Freaks, that movie, for like a year at midnight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which was another whole big event. <laughs> and then after that theater, and then we also played Japanese movies in the daytime and the evening, and then at midnight was always Freaks. After that theater went through its run, I um, I actually rented a – I was approached by New Line Cinema. This is how far I go back with New Line. I had been approached when I was at the Regency by a, a producer um, who had this movie called Reefer Madness. Yeah. And obviously we have seen and, Reefer Madness. <laughs> yeah, we have obviously seen it. So I you know, I played it up at a up at a theater up in um upper west side Manhattan. And the people who own that theater happened to be the the owners of New Line Cinema. And um once we found they found out the movie was in the public domain, they started releasing the movie around the country. And I also started got my own copy of the print. Of the movie, I made my own copy, and so we were sort of going. We we became competitors across the whole country trying to release this one movie. Wow! And in order to in order to publicize it, I actually four walled a theater down in in uh, on Eighth Street in the village called the Cinema Village. That was it called? Was it called the Astor Place? I think. <laughs> and um, for one year, that movie played, and you know, it, it easily became the center of dope dealing in, in Manhattan for that entire period. You, know, awesome. you, so, you couldn't go in. You couldn't go into that theater without a contact high. <laughs> so that film is what got you into the like marketing industry, essentially. Yeah, well, it got me into distribution in a way, and you know, I started selling it to colleges, and then you know, it actually did quite well, and we ended up buying some other movies, and it went from there. But um, that that was the distribution part, and then um, I became friendly with a with a director named Peter Bogdanovich over town, and I went out to LA and met him and a couple of friends of mine, and we um, ended up producing a movie that he made called They All Laughed, which was with Audrey Hepburn and um, Ben Gazzara, John Ritter. Wow. And um, that was quite, it was actually shot in New York, but you, you, I don't know if you know the story of that movie. There was a movie that was made about that, about that movie called Star 80. Well, without getting into too much detail, Peter was having an affair with the with the woman who he cast in the movie, a playmate named Dorothy Stratton, playmate of the year named Stratton. That's so funny you bring it up. We we just interviewed Eric Roberts uh, in November. Oh, he played that role. He, he played the role. Yes, Paul. Yeah. yes, he did. So we talked to him all all about Star about that role too. That's right. All right. Well, I, I'm I don't have to go into the gory details because it was pretty. It was. It was talking about coming into Hollywood with. Yeah, it was the biggest cliche to enter Hollywood as part of a murder suicide. Yeah. 
<laughs> but it, it got me to LA and Peter at that point, of course, was pretty distraught about the whole thing. So right. he couldn't really do very much in terms of what our plans were in terms of production and everything. But then I uh, met some people at Landmark Theaters and they had known me from my Regency days because they were also running repertoire movies and they asked me to join them. And that sort of got me into the whole distribution and marketing part. Wow. So what and was your first major film that you were assigned to? Um, it was a re-release of Seven Samurai. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you knew yeah, that right I, away. I, stayed there, I remember yeah, that. I stayed, I stayed there about a year. And then um, there was another company that was starting called uh, Island Alive Pictures, which was, this is now early 80s. And this is really when the, the independent American cinema movement began, began. There was a couple of really great companies like Cinecom and Island Alive. And, you know, we were out there um, buying all these movies that these American filmmakers were were making and also there was a whole british way of happening and um you know we bought actually spike's first movie she's gonna have it out of the san francisco film festival wow and uh released that which was really a lot of fun because you know we released it in art theaters and you know there was never a black film that was um released in these sort of upscale art houses so that was a whole spike. interesting situation for a lot of people yeah that's great um yeah, it was very, it was obviously it was very successful, launched his career, and it was great. Um, and it's so amazing. What, two years ago now, there was finally a TV series called She's Gotta Have It. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like 40 years later. Like, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, so Island Alive was a very, very successful company. I mean, we, we had movies like Kiss of the Spider Woman. Um, you know, we won William Hurt's first actor award. Uh, we did early Neil Jordan movies like Mona Lisa, um, Luke Besson's early film, Subway. So, it was all these, you know, new filmmakers that were coming out of the UK and the US, and um, it was a pretty great run of movies. Wow! Um, but like all companies, you know, it, it, particularly independent companies, it um, it sort of started careening south. And I left, and I was recruited by the original Miramax, uh, and I worked there for two and a half years. Yes, I worked with Harvey and Bob. I was sort of their veneer at that point. <laughs> this is all pre-Disney and all before a lot of the nonsense happened with him. Yeah, of course. Um. But again, that was a really successful, you know, we had a couple of good, good runs there. Um, what else did we have there? Um, uh, My Left Foot, uh, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and His Lover, uh, Madonna's movie, Truth or Dare. I mean, it was, a, you know, it was, it was pretty cool. And then Polygram and Universal came after me to start a company that they were doing as a JV called Gramercy Pictures. This is now the early 90s. I'll, I'll stop after this company. <laughs> um, no, please don't. Which, which, which was pretty, which was pretty fascinating because um, it was actually run by Universal was was a, um, I mean, Polygram is sort of a record label, right? It was a record company, and they wanted to create a co-venture with Universal, who had a lot of directors who were fostering some younger filmmakers too, you know, like Scorsese and everybody. And this is actually what Kevin Kevin Smith came out of. Um, oh. Wow. And and. Um, Polygram's whole idea behind it was to set up the company like a record label where you had individual production units sort of um, feeding into a centralized distribution system, which in fact was my company called Gramercy Pictures. Okay. So, you know, at that point we had anonymous, we had um, Propaganda, which is now called Anonymous, and, and Ted Field, we had Interscope yeah. Pictures, Jody Forza had a label, and Working Title was one of the big you know, providers, and they're still very much around. And that was a uh, that was quite a run. That was sort of Camelot. Yeah, you had that, some that, monster that titles period. that came out at that period. Yeah, it was really, it was really, it was a really great run. Um, even Vin Diesel's first movie. <laughs> Which was that? Pitch Black, right? Pitch Black. Well, that was exactly, that was actually the second movie. His first movie was a uh, there was a, a Wall Street. A Wall Street called the Boiler Room. Boiler Room. Yeah, that was that Vin new Diesel's line, first line, movie. I think it was Boiler Room. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Wow, he was great. Like, Matt. Yeah, the funnest job just ever. I mean, well, I guess I guess I always like marketing because I never had the patience to be a producer. I never had the bank account this, you know, to sort of option a lot of things. So to me, what was exciting about marketing is that there was always another one coming down the pike, right? And you could be juggling, you know, four or five movies at a time, and it was always exciting. Yeah, and you could use your course, creativity. When it comes to yeah, the marketability right. of a film, is it more about the story, the stars? What What is it that excites you? Well, it's really, in, in this world of independent cinema, which is where I grew up, it was really about, you know, is there an original idea here? Um, you know, the, the, the stars are never a 
drivers of independent movies. It's really about what, you know, is it a unique storyline? Sure. You know, is there something buzzy about it? Originality. And that's still, you know, that's, yeah, that's still holds right now, you know. Absolutely. The, it the, A20, the A24 successes, the focus successes, they're all about originality, you know, original yeah. content. More now than ever. Um, so when your involvement first begins, what stage of the production is to film in? Well, at Gramercy, it was really a start of production because we were involved pretty early on since these were all you know, basically production companies. Um, so, you know, we didn't, we didn't really have, um, you know, a uh, green light. Yeah. You know, we didn't have really yellow red light either. We couldn't stop a movie from being made, but you know, my job really <laughs> was to sort of, my job is really to sort of speak to all the heads of these, you know, these fiercely independent labels and sort of get into, you know, who's the audience and how are we going to sell this and what can we do about it? So, Sure. It was all very, you know, it was all very, you know, above board. And, you know, the legendary battles between marketing and, and production that happened so much at the studios where they don't talk to each other, they're all siloed. That didn't happen in this this company because everybody knew that what they were trying was something really unique. And, you know, and, and we had to w really work together from the very, very beginning to try to um exploit the movies or find, you know, something in, inside the films to really make them work. At the same time, you know, Joel and Ethan Cohen make, make Fargo. And what are you going to do? It's okay. Oh. Looks great. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> but of course, then, then, then the head of the company, Polygram says, well, you know, we have to test the movie. I said, well, you know, Joel and Ethan have never gone to a, to a research screening of any of their movies. So I said, no, well, let's just do it anyway. You know, so they didn't think it. it was a slam dunk right away? They still thought... No, no not at all. Nobody... Really? Wow. And I, I always thought of... I, 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 was, I, I loved the movie, but you, know, you never know, right? Oh, um, love it. I understand so, that you had a big hand in the design for the poster, uh, which, of course, then took evolved and became basically the whole theme for the poster series of the yeah, TV show. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So anyway, the funny thing is that the Coens, of course, refused to... Uh, to go to the uh, screening, you know, they just didn't need it. They did Blood Simple, they didn't need it. So we had the screening and it was the, you know, when, when you have a research screening, audiences fill out boxes and, you know, recommend, mm -hmm. definitely recommend whatever. It was the lowest scoring movie I've ever had. No okay? way, I refuse Fargo. to believe that. No, it's true because when you, when you don't set up an audience, even though this was a curated audience of art film lovers, but when they don't get the, you know, the, the validation from critics or film festivals, you know, and even back then, they didn't quite know what to say. So, you know, and this was really early on in the movie. And, you know, the it was it, it scored like if, if an average movie for a, a research screening is like a 70, 75, is that a 20? Oh, you know, the top wow. two boxes. Wow. And but we said, OK, we'll just charge ahead. And, you know, we did the whole platform classic release. And, of course, the rest of history. Yeah, you know, once the film was discovered and, and written about. I remember there's one funny story with them. The, um, you know, one of our, our copy line, which actually is the same line in the very beginning of the movie, it says, this is based on a true story, right? Yeah. True events. <laughs> so, of course, there was an intrepid reporter out of uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, who went on a tear for months to try to find out whether, where, where this story <laughs> oh, came <no>. from. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> you know, about he's about to break this great news, you know, a week before we're supposed to open. This movie's a lie, right? So he calls us and he said, you know that there is no documented evidence that this case ever happened. And you're saying it did. I said, well, you know, you better speak to, why don't you speak to Joel about that? Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So he calls up Joel and Joel like does his wonderful pregnant pause when the, when the guy said to him, yeah, this is not true. Pregnant pause says, really? It's not? What? No, really, it's not. Hi, this is a film. How are you? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you know, they're so great about that. So anyway, um, that was a, it was a, that was a fun period. And, you know, Four Letters in the Trudeau with Hugh Grant's first movie up at Sundance of all places. Who would take a British romantic comedy to Sundance when we did? Oh, fun! <laughs> I would think that some are far easier than others. Do you have any examples yeah. of movies that you felt? a lot of pressure to succeed, but just didn't think it would? Maybe uh, the playability versus marketability factor? Well, um, in the independent world, you never know You never know what's what's uh, marketable, but you certainly find out what's playable. And yes, you're right. You don't need one without the other, but marketability is certainly a much easier way, which is why the studios you know, do what they do and do it so well. Yeah. You know, go with IP and, and stay in that world. 
independent, you know, you've got to find something that makes the movie important or click or, you know, like I said, buzzy. Right. Sure. So I think every every independent movie is a challenge. I've never really had, even Lord of the Rings was a huge challenge, but I'll we get to that if you want. No, but all I, these movies, I, I mean, I need an explanation as to how like, that that seems like a like it went into it with just a plan for a success. Um, no, not quite. Um, like, right, and, 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 that and by that, I mean that they were going to go with a trilogy and that they knew that they had like so, something huge already. And well, to the tested. masses, yeah. it was like going to be on well, love. interesting you say that, but I mean, they they sort of believed it, but it's not quite the way it worked out. Um, first of all, nobody has ever and still hasn't since made three movies in a row without, I mean, back to back to back without seeing how the first one did. That includes Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, once that first one came out, they made 12 other ones. Or right. Yeah. You know, 19 Avatar is coming, but yeah, never did it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is we know it's going to happen with Avatar, but that's, that's a lot that of hasn't faith happened. and that's money the... to spend to wow. not know exactly how it's going to turn out. And a lot of yeah, technology so, so, and a huge cast. Yeah. Well, but the word on the word on Hollywood with this with this trilogy was that it was going to be fail because there was no way to guarantee what would happen if the first one didn't work. I mean, New Line would at that point had about a hundred two hundred fifty million dollars into it, and this is back in the late nineties. Um, you know, it's going to go under and be absorbed by Warner Brothers, and that would be it, the end of it. I had just gotten there, so I had a three year deal. I said, oh well, okay, that'll be quick. And anyway, it, yeah. and it was your <laughs> job to make it a success. Yeah, that's some pressure. Well, it was interesting. Um, Peter was a you know very very particular filmmaker, and you know when you look back on it, you, you, you think about that Peter was a came out of the horror world, right? He was a B director. He made movies like Brain Dead for Universal, and you know things like that. Um, and he and nobody in the movie was known outside of Ian McKellen to some extent. And it was everything about that movie which said B. You know, the director, the cast, all unknowns. The effects were all, all unknown. Nobody knew anything about the effects. New Zealand, where the heck is that? <laughs> matter of fact, Why are we going matter of fact the, first, the first day I got my job, um, which, is, which I think was beginning of June in that year, 2001, uh, the head of New Line, Bob Shea, said, don't go to the office, go to the Van Nuys Airport and get on my plane. What? I said, well, he said, where are we going? He said, we're going to New Zealand. So... So he's um. So you went to so New Zealand, and, and I had I had like everybody in high school had bought the books but never read them, right? Right. It was just a cool thing to have on your yeah, shelf. Yeah, you just have to so. like have it on your desk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I I realized, holy shit, I'm going to meet Peter Jackson. I haven't read Fellowship yet. So the good news about it, the good news about a private jet is that it take it took like 18 hours to get there. So I was able to read the whole thing. Nice. And, you know, Good. came up with a marketing plan and, you know, we met Peter and it all worked out from there. But at least it was fresh, it was, uh, fresh in your mind. Like you knew all the details. Yeah, I, I know exactly where I was. I know yeah. everything. I mean, even I, I didn't retain everything, but, you know, I retained <laughs> most. And also there was a, uh, there was a campaign that was executed before I got there, which he was not happy with. So I think he was sort of hoping that I would come up with something halfway decent that he could accept and then, you know, go from there. But, you know, again, it was not it was not considered a slam dunk. I mean, we, we started doing research early on and the only people who were really aware of the movie were like 50 year old men. There was no <laughs> female interest. It. You know, there was no female interest. There was very little interest. I think 20 percent awareness of even the books in America. Wow. But New Line, unbeknownst to a lot of people, you know, is a company that for those during that period um, specialized in foreign pre-sales. And they had developed a lot of relationships with companies who were independent distributors in various countries, UK, France, Germany, whatever. Oh, okay. And they all contributed a piece of the budget. Um, okay. So in, in reality, um, of the $250 million, it was around 80% of it was covered by European and international sales. Wow. And, wow. It was mostly, and it was mostly because the books were so popular overseas, much okay. more popular overseas than they were here. So, you know, Nobody really wanted to pay attention to that, but I mean, from a financial standpoint, they were they were pretty safe with it. Yeah. Except, of course, when I presented them an eighty million dollar budget to market the movie. Wow. <laughs> and and did different. you did you take any issue with the length? The length? Yes, the length of the movie. Uh, I don't. It wasn't a conversation that I had. I mean, there were some conversations, but I think Peter, you know, he he was part of that process, and Dulo was part of the process. But I think Peter ultimately made his own decisions. Wow. Yeah. And don't. And there was a lot of reshoots. There was a lot of additional photography. I mean, those movies were works in progress for a I long can't time. Even imagine. So two things happened after, you know, I came back. 
yeah, we saw working on the campaign all summer. We saw putting out trailers. I mean, my first question was, how do I sell these characters? I mean, what's a Frodo? Nobody had any <laughs> yeah. idea what a Frodo was. What's a Frodo? You know, was it a was it a frog? Was it a cake? I mean, who knew? <laughs> so, so we had to create. Um, actually, you know, and at this point, cable television was a big deal at that point. So we created one minute sort of mini movies about each character and what their journey was. Oh, smart. And then we saw the long teaser campaign that we built over the summer so people could at least understand what the characters were. And then in September, we started bringing in the storyline. And then by, you know, by November, it all came together. But it was a long, long, long campaign. It sure was. I I remember being on the consumer end of that campaign, and I saw Lord of the Rings trailers for a year before that movie came out. It, it, it's seemed, about that, yeah. It, it seemed like it was out for, I mean, it, it was the longest uh, amount of trailers that I saw before the actual release came out. It's interesting hearing that side, though, that it was like specifically thought out where you can kind of at least learn part of the characters, part of the story, so you at least sort of understand mm-hmm. what you're going to go photo? in. Yeah, what, what is this? <laughs> and the scary thing is that that movie premiered this year, 20 years ago. 20, I know. That was 20, 20 years ago? Damn. Well, it, 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 so that brings me to the second part of the, of the interesting thing about this movie. So the first big event that happened, of course, was 9-11, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. That year. That um, year. 20th, that anniversary, year. 20th anniversary for 9-11 too this year. It's going to present a challenge, And, right? you know, the country was obviously went through in, in shock, denial, yeah. everything, fear, all yeah. that. And, you know, it, there was something about when Lord of the Rings came out, which was even four months later, I mean, that movie was was all about hope, right? And it was all about a journey, and yeah. it was all about. And actually, it 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 um, it was sort of a sort of a religious saga. I mean, you know, um, sure. J.R. Tolkien was extremely religious. Um, you know, um, him and his best friend, um, who wrote, oh God, what's the other guy's name? I forgot his name. Um, anyway, it was it was really adopted and joined by the um, the, the Christian and Catholic groups in this country. They sort of looked at. Frodo carrying the ring is, you know, akin to the metaphor of Jesus and the cross. So, you know, but that aside, that we we sort of found that audience on its own. It didn't, yeah. we didn't obviously sell it to that initially, but there were so many things that were going on about, you know, battling evil and you know, everything that Lord of the Rings stood for. Um, that movie was the perfect answer, anecdote to yeah. what had happened. It was just such a, a story and a universe to kind of uh, yeah. get involved in. A lot of characters and really the technology. Like it, it was the avatar of that time. It was the the, yeah, was. the matrix of that time. Yeah. Was it, it took it to the next level. That followed it too. Like there was like many people that all joined here that all like just loved it so much. But still, before we opened. You know, we didn't quite know what we had. I mean, it was still being referred yeah. to as a very expensive art movie. Because, you know, again, nobody was in it. Peter was unknown, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, there was this looming movie called Harry Potter, which was opening about a oh, month yeah. before oh, by, awesome. from Warner Brothers, our sister company, that was going to decimate, you know, not only every other thing at the box office, but our movie as well, which is what everybody was expecting was going to happen. Oh. There's no way that two huge movies like this, two... Lord of the Rings became known as the F movie, the F word movie. And when you're doing an Academy campaign, fantasy is the dreaded word because no fantasy has ever won or been nominated. Right. That that makes sense. Especially especially by that time. Yeah. So uh, for Harry Potter, it wasn't really an issue because they didn't really, I mean, other than effects and everything, but that movie did not get very good reviews. I mean, did obviously phenomenal business. Um, but it did not get very good reviews. And it, there was something about the air that when people started screening our movie, Lord of the Rings, all of a sudden the critics just loved it. Now, maybe they were the high school kids who actually read the book. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Could have been. That's yeah. exactly <laughs> what about it is. now, right? No you know, doubt about or, it. And Peter, Peter being sort of a nerd at that point, well, it probably still is in many ways, <laughs> right. um, they all identified with him. And, yeah. You know, there was, there was obviously a much more male-dominated critical world at that point than there is right now, thank God. Yeah. Well, not, not, I'm, I'm happy that it's all evolved. But absolutely. Still, even there. There's a lot of girls that got really into Lord of the Rings. After the first one opened, yeah, yeah, when they discovered Aragon, yeah, after they discovered Legolas, 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 yeah, anyway, Orlando, yeah. Anyway, so it it um it was a it was actually a real surprise. I mean that it did what it did. I mean we we sort of smelled it coming, uh, you know, like a month out. I'm sure. But um, 
you know, this was a movie that every studio would have tested, you know, to the nth degree. Every TV spot would have been tested. Every trailer would have been tested. The movie would have been tested. You know, endless arguments with Peter about editing and hunting and this and that. Um, but we didn't. Um, he had control. And we didn't actually test one TV spot or one trailer because wow. we were also we were so scared that this would get out. And we didn't test the movie particularly because we were afraid it would get out. You know, even if we went to some, you know, smaller smaller area like wherever in Colorado or Arizona at that point. Um, so we never tested the movie. So again, it was total. The whole like, thing was we'll just totally see how this does. built on faith. <laughs> yeah, it really was. It was all on faith. And yeah, second, the second and third one were a little bit easier. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure after all that. Well, so okay, so the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Fargo. Uh, what other films do you look back and just take tremendous pride for having influence? Well, the new line, the new line years were pretty great. I mean, you know, yeah. Yeah. I think Elf, Elf, which was a, yeah. you know, obviously is, is now an evergreen picture. Um, you know, I, I, again, what New Line was so good at was taking, was finding talent. You know, Jim Carrey, uh, Will Ferrell, Wedding Crashers, um, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, all these people, even even uh, Austin Powers. You know, yeah, they were sort of on the cusp, but they hadn't really made it yet. And, you know, sort of getting them at a point where they were just about to break, which was great for me because they did all the publicity I asked them to. Yeah. You know, because they, they, they didn't know any better. They were in these huge, <laughs> you know? big shots. They didn't, yeah. yeah, they didn't know better. That's great. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the managers and the agents were saying, oh, I don't think we're going to do that show. <laughs> so, you know, and again, New Line was great at that. Of course, they didn't necessarily stay with New Line afterward. They sort of moved on to bigger, better paydays. But, you know, this was... Um, you know, Elf was, was that version, and even Wedding Crashes, which was Wedding Crashes was an interesting movie to sell because you know it was a great cast, obviously, and a yeah. great director, David Dobkin. Um, but the movie was supposed to be about a bunch of guys going to weddings to get laid, right? That's yeah. sort of what the, the movie is. That's the premise, and that's the premise, and that's sort of why they made it. And what happened with this is that every TV spot or every trailer that we created. Um, tested so much better for women than men that we were driving ourselves crazy. What? Really? Um, I was sort of, I was sort of secretly liking the idea, but I was getting yeah. hammered by the president of the company and by the, the director and the production executives. Why can't you create a trailer that goes to the audience that we made the movie for? <laughs> and, you know, it, it turned out that that's not who the movie was for. The movie was for women. Wow, and, that's it was, you know, surprising. And women love and, it. You know, it's true. Yeah, it ultimately played about fifty-five percent female and you know forty-five percent male. At the end of the day, you know, it's it's a romantic comedy. It, it is a rom-com. Yeah, it is a romantic comedy, and you know, great, great, handsome guys. You know, great romance, and um, you know, some amazing performances by these women. Yeah, you know, particularly uh, Isla Fisher. Yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely. Awesome. Good comedy. <laughs> Made a name for herself in that one. Yeah, yeah. She skyrocketed yeah. after that. Well, do your students ever ask about any particular films? Well, you know, now here I am. I, I'm, I'm now into Gen Z, right? I'm sort of the Manelli, 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 millennials are sort of moving on. And now I'm into the Gen Z. So my first <laughs> class, I said, I said, you know, how many how many kids have uh, seen Lord of the Rings? And I get blank stares. You're uh -huh. kidding me. No. Uh, it's horrible. It's horrible. No. You know, there's a couple, there's a couple of film nuts who raise their hand all happily. Tell a story. Tell a story, professor. So this is like but a historical them, film now? Oh my God. 20 we, years ago? I, I think Stop. it is. Well, like most college students haven't seen anything be, before 2000 anyway. So oh, what so, so what, what? films are they bringing up? What? What is? What are they loving right now? Well, whatever's contemporary, you know, oh. whatever. That's what's relevant to them, you know. Uh, well, so, you, I mean, not that not that film students don't have an appreciation for some, you know, for sure, art no, yeah. I, movies, but again, it's the relevant one. They don't go back. And yes, we have film history classes and they do get to see some of them. Um, it's all that, but I mean, the Lord of the Rings thing started happening about a, about two years ago. Oh my! About God. half the class had never seen it. I said, not even on DVD. So, well, my sister saw it. I didn't oh really my see God. it. My older sister saw it. I'm shocked. So oh, I'm beyond God. shocked to hear that. I'm a little upset. Yeah, yeah. me too. I not even yeah, a huge Lord of the Rings fan, but I'm just like I feel no, obligated. We to grew up differently and loved older movies than we were. Like my favorite movie, even as a young child, was Bonnie and Clyde. Always, yeah, of course. and always has been. Yeah. So okay. it's like just movies that, like, I mean, you gotta just go back. And Lord of the Rings, that was not even that long ago. I understand 20 years, but. I mean, I know. If we're anyway, you know, you, you got to roll with it. But I, you know, I, I'm, I, I managed to get a couple of stories, and then 
But once I get to Travolta stories on Hairspray, then I get really excited. So. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> well, if we're, on, if we're on the subject of contemporary movies, have you seen anything recently? It's it's award season. Have you seen anything this year that you really liked? Well, there, I think there's a lot of really good movies. I mean, I think, again, it, with my um, focus on originality as, as sort of something that helps break out, I think Promising Young Woman is so so daring. We completely agree. It was daring, especially the ending. I love hearing you say that. And it's interesting. I don't know many women who like that movie at all, which I'm really surprised at. Oh, I Um, definitely enjoyed it. Consensus? All right. Well, great. Yeah. I mean, I think... Yeah, our mom enjoyed it. Too. Yeah, our crazy. mom did enjoy yeah. it. She was the one right, that told well, me to make sure. Special family, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> specials one way. Describe. We've been called a lot of things. Specials. <laughs> You're we'll, sweet. We'll, 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 we were raised by great parents. Yeah, that's, that's a soundbite we're gonna keep. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I think Minari, Nomadland. I mean, all the yeah. other ones. I, I wasn't a big fan of Bank, but you know, that's just me. Yeah, I wasn't either, um, and I was really into Minari until I wasn't, and it just kind of I didn't like the ending. And um, I have I, I liked I liked the first forty five minutes of Minari. I thought that was really good. Um, well, to me, it's, it's a difficult year. I it mean, was I a difficult year. Judas and the Black Messiah, I thought was good. Yeah, so did I. I, 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 I like that too. Yeah, that was that was good. Very well acted and well put together. Yeah, he's great, Daniel. Good Lord, yeah, is he great? So wow, very very. But you know, if you think about, if you want to talk about the Academy for a second, there, there is something interesting I think is going on. You know, a lot of smaller movies got nominated this year because those are the only ones that were released, right? Yep. However, you know, the Academy over the past three years has made a very, very strong diversity push, right? Yeah. And they've gone from maybe 7,000 members, which were basically, you know, all Hollywood, average age, 62. And they've now added another 3,000 international, diverse, you know, hmm. uh, film, young filmmakers. Oh. So it's a much more, it's a much more, whatever you want to call it, democratic makeup. Which they, they were very, very careful about that because they got nailed yeah. a couple of years ago. For yeah. sure. I think you remember hashtag Oscar so white, right? Yeah. Yes. So I do remember that. They worked on that, you know. Um, but so what but I think what's happened now is that the all these new members, as well as the older ones who are starting to die off or become non voting members, you know, they're into a smaller, more unique kind of movie. So I don't think that the Academy movies will, even when the studios start releasing again, that the Academy Best Picture nominees will be any different than what we're seeing this year because the people who are now voting are the people who really have been supporting smaller indie movies since, you know, forever. So that's why you know, all the Best who's, Picture nominees... Who's Boone, John, who's Boone John Hogan not, you know, vote for next year? Right. It's not going to be... I mean, it might be Tenant, but not necessarily... He's not going to vote for Wonder Woman, you know. Yeah, right. I mean, not, that, not that I mean to speak for him, of course, but maybe he will. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's anyway, cool to hear I, about how they're kind of restructuring things and adding new members. No, it's yeah. all that's all great, but I think, you know, but of course, I think on the on the other side, I think the ratings are going to continue to go down because a lot yeah. of the people will not have seen these movies, and certainly that's not this. Yes, no, no, they were not. The lineup. I, yeah. I remember when you Blake first told me the lineup. I was like, "Huh, I don't know. I think I've heard of one." <laughs> yeah, like you've heard just yeah, a couple. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. had to dig and like look to find these movies, and they were. It opens it, me up to watching those movies because that like they're very you know, indie. Introduces me to them, but there was definitely a it's vibe. different year for yeah. sure. Well, we have a lot yeah. of young filmmakers in our audience, and we have several that come on as guests. What advice do you give the next generation of filmmakers when it comes to making a marketable film? Well, I think it always comes down to making sure you know who you're making it for. You know, if you can't if you can't really figure out who your audience is even before you start writing a script, then you're you're in the wrong business because that's really what it comes down to. You know, you got to know who you want to make the movie for, and then of course the whole issue of marketing is how you're going to find that audience. But again, you know, with the advent of social now, there's so much that you can do even during production that starts building a community and, you know, fan base and, yeah. you know, around, around the movie base, whether it's a theme or whatever. But again, you know, um, also I think uh, the whole distribution of movies is going to change. I mean, I don't know whether the, I'm sure the theaters will make a big comeback with their tent poles. I don't know really how the independents are going to survive. That's, um, that's what I was going to ask you next, actually. With the rise of streaming platforms, do you expect to see more of like a change in theatrical releases and the way big budget films will at least be distributed? I don't think this, the temples are what, is what going to keep the movie business alive, and I think the, the ex- exhibition business alive, and as well they should, because I think they're great events that happen in the movie theater. They may not be five five shows a day; they may go more to a Broadway 
formula, maybe a an afternoon show and an evening show. You know, I don't know. I can see There's that. probably too many movie theaters anyway. There's 40,000 movie theaters in America so right now. I'm sure 10,000 could go away and no one would know the difference. But, you know, the real issue is what happens, you know, how do, how do independent movies, you know, besides the ones that get released for Academy consideration in the fourth quarter, how do these other movies get, get seen, you know? And I think, you know, there's got to be a more, more of a symbiosis between the distributors and the exhibitors where there's much more of a revenue share and they cross promote together. And even the streamers, these movies are going right to a streaming place. Um, they got to kick in on the marketing budget. They can't just not do it because they should, and they should get a piece of the theatrical. Is that how? I think if they can, if they can come together, I mean, who knows if they will, I don't know, but Netflix needs anybody really. But Is that how you know, HBO think, Max is getting all these deals that are, you know, movies coming out straight to theater, but also HBO Max at the same time? Well, they've, they've got, I don't think it's, it, I'm not sure if it's a revenue share, but it's certainly a, a lot of negotiation that went on over the summer when they made that announcement, you know, but I, you know, it's, it's probably helping HBO. But I, again, you know, I'm thinking it's more about based on performance, which means that the streamers have to give up their their viewing numbers, which they've been very, very loath to do. Sure. You know, they were all trying to protect, you know, how many people were seeing it, because for that re- very reason, um, you know, if a if a theatrical movie on first run um, does extraordinarily well, then the talent can be saying, well, we want some of that. You know, yeah. why are we getting paid for that? <laughs> so there's a lot to work out over the next year or two, I think. Yeah. So I don't believe I, I don't think the theatrical business is going away at all. Um, good. I just it's good to hear. It's, it's yeah. the independence which you're gonna have to have to do some heavy soul searching. Yeah. Does the content dictate whether a film is best for streaming or theatrical release? Is it the budget? What what kind of determines that? You think? Well, look, you guys know what kind of movies you go see. You go see uh, anything with a big IP. You'll, you know, any movie that has a big effects, big budget. Known characters and known sourcing IP, you know, Marvel so universe, whatever. You know us so you know, well. Yeah. <laughs> or, if it's, or, if it's a horror, or if it's a horror movie, you can want to go see it with an audience so everybody can scream and yell together. If it's a comedy, you want to go see it with a big audience. But comedies probably could go, could play either also just as well, you know, at home. But, you know, it's, it's those dramas, you know, it's the more character based movies, which is what the, you know, which is what, I mean, look, think even Promising Young Woman, do you have to see that in a movie theater? No, 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 you don't. You know, Minari, no, no, you have no, no, no man land. land, yeah, any, well, any of these. The only thing about No Man Land is that it's so beautifully shot that I, I would have liked to have seen that on the cinemascope screen. Yeah, it would you look know, beautiful. Beautifully the way it would shot. Look. Yeah. I love Francis McDormand. I can't get behind that movie. It just, I wanted to get into it. I knew it had the uh, best picture buzz behind it. I had to see it and. I didn't love it. Like I, I'm, I'm more promising young woman just for originality. Mm-hmm. And did you see one of her earlier movies called The Writer? No. Recommend it. Go, go see that. You, you'll understand where she's where she comes from. Um, there was a very small movie that was released by I think Sony Classics, and it's about a uh, a young rodeo rider who is severely injured and how he tries to bring his life back together. And oh. it's all done with it's all done with the real people, the real family. Whoa, but you don't really know cool. that they're acting until you find that out later. Oh my god! Or that, when wow. you do the research, I mean, it's 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 beautiful. It's a beautiful Ooh, movie. Cool. But again, the writer. It's R- very R-I-D-E-R, small. R-I-D-E-R, writer. Okay. Yeah, the writer. Yeah, it's it's very small, but it's you know it's it's you know it takes its time. Like she she doesn't she's not a fast cutter. You know? No, a lot of it are you know a lot of it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, if you see that, I think you might have more of a more of an appreciation for what she's trying to say in No Man Land. But I agree, it's not a okay. commercial movie. Well, I appreciate you know? I appreciate that, and thank you very much for the recommendation. Uh, so tell yeah. tell us about your book, The Marketing Edge for Filmmakers. When you're in the business, as long as you have, as I've been in, you know, I've really gotten into the teaching thing. It's a lot of fun. I mean, but the book was sort of a, you know, shit. I better put it down before I forget it, right? Yeah. And, <laughs> You've learned a lot. It's been a big part of the industry. Yeah, and, you know, I, I felt it would have some value to students. I mean, you know, the, the good thing about marketing, at least, you know, the basic marketing, is that it really hasn't changed. You know, it's all about, like, really? like I mentioned earlier, it, well, it's about understanding your audience, finding your audience, yep. you know, how do you get your audience engaged. And what's, only, what's changed, now, of course, are the platforms and the ways of doing it. But it's still the basic thing of getting an audience excited, either to come to a theater or now to turn on a show. Um, and you know, how, what's the campaign look like? What's the trailer look like? What's the post look like? Same driving elements that have been around for, you know, a hundred years. Wow. Um, it, just in different places. Right. 
you know, so the book is a combination of, you know, a lot that I learned, you know, through my career, as well as, um, you know, we devote a little time at the end to um, how to do it yourself, because that's becoming an even bigger thing, probably even more so now, you know, what DIY marketing and distribution is about. Um, but I do not force my students to buy it. I feel really guilty because it costs like thirty-five dollars. <laughs> I really don't. I'm, I'm, I'm actually giving away. I'm actually giving away more books. Than I well, I, I saw <laughs> it's available on Amazon and it's in the student filmmaker store. Are those the best places to get our hands on it for thirty-five dollars? Yeah, unless uh, I can send you one. I've got a couple of my um, shelf yes, right here. Please. No, we will take you, you up on that. Address, um, we will take you up on Amanda that. Will give, maybe Amanda will give me the address. Done. Consider it done. I'm yes, because I, I am actually dying to cover read to this book. Like, I feel like, again, this has been just like, yeah. what a fun jog career. We, we've grown up loving films. So I can imagine in marketing, I mean, loving that creative side. And he, yeah. even what you've said now, I would love, love, love to learn more. I, I watched and, and completely enjoyed your master class. Um, the marketing oh, yeah, industry. that was that was it. The co-op one, the Sundance one. That's right. The Sundance yeah. one is it's still available and it's like really a fantastic resource if you're a filmmaker. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit stage. about the book. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. I, mean, it was, uh, I didn't have any idea what I was getting myself into. It was like, they told me like 1,800 people tuned in, but you can't see any of them. You know? <laughs> so that's, that had to be challenging. That had to be challenging. We, yeah, it was, yeah. it was yeah. really it was, it was interesting. You, you did not have to be a filmmaker at all. You could just be in, interested in filmmaking like like we are. Uh, so I definitely wanted to share that to our listeners as well because that was a well, really, thank you for that. really yeah. good resource. Yeah, and the book covers a lot of that. So, you know, just perhaps in more detail. But it's, 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 it's not really a textbook. It's much more anecdotal. I mean, not that I, I get into too many stories because – the woman I wrote it with is still very, very working very much in the film industry right now. So she kept on saying, you can't tell that story, Russell, because I'm going to get fired. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so we, we came up with an uneasy piece about that. But, None. Um, yeah, there was, there was some funny stories. I remember when um, at New Line, my, um, the head of, of the New Line with Bob said, it was you know, an amazing indie entrepreneur that died. just great. But very, very volatile and all that. And he had... You know how how important now outdoor advertising is, for example, right? Yes, of course. Um, you know, with billboards, particularly with family movies, animated films, but now even Netflix and HBO have taken over pretty much every billboard in town because they're all advertising their programs. Yeah. So, but you know, outdoor was was never the province of independence because it was always an additional budget item, and if something if you didn't have the money, you would that would be the first thing to go because you never really could quantify it. But you know, as a as a media, it's really just about another place to be reminded that the yeah. book is coming or that yeah. the book is coming out. And also, you sort of have a a little bit of a um, ownership of your audience at a traffic light. You know, and there's not too many other comp- competing billboards out there about movies, and you sort of own them for you know 30 seconds. Right. Anyway, so certainly on the movies that we had, where you know Elf was a really really big important outdoor campaign. I don't know if you remember the. Posters that we oh, did, yeah. absolutely. It was him sort of bursting. Yeah. It was him bursting out of the out of the uh, yep. confines of the of the post, of the billboard. But my guy um, hated outdoor. He thought it was just a complete waste of money. So normally, when you're a marketing guy for a studio, you make sure that you buy the outdoor that is on the same drive that your boss is when he goes home. <laughs> right. I'm gonna make sure you see those. And so you plan. have to make. You know, and this this would also be for the star necessarily if you plan it where they lived or the agent or the manager. Just make sure that they see the billboards when they're on the driving home. My guy hated billboards so much, I had to actually have billboards going the opposite direction from his drive. <laughs> I do not put it on my side. <laughs> so I, I had to. I thought I had to sort of hide the posters from where he was going. So <laughs> yeah, sort of funny. It's a bit of a running joke at New Line. Well, real quick, before we let you go, I, I understand okay. that your company, Pandemic Marketing, has been around for like ah. 10 years now, and it just became Pandemic's a coincidence around, yes. last year with the name. And is it true that you have the California plates that say Pandemic? Wow. I do. P-A-N-D-M-I-C. <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, you know, last March or April when, um, I mean, look, the reason I came up with the name, and it was just sort of flip, was I figured, you know, Pandemic is about an, an, a, a you know, affecting a lot of people very quickly, which yeah. is sort of what marketing was, right? So yeah. It sort of fits. Anyway, but when the pandemic hit, um, all of a sudden, I'd be in a parking lot at Ralph's or something, and people come up to me and say, are you a doctor? Oh. You know, 
Are you a uh, biophysicist? Oh no! I mean, if I was in, the, I so could have made a lot of money. Serious in questions about the virus. President of <laughs> pandemic marketing. I could have made a lot of money being, you know, setting up shop in a, you know, a, a Kmart parking lot or a Walmart parking lot, just giving advice. I couldn't. Not a doctor. Anyway, I still, get, I still get a lot of thumbs up, and the only danger about that license plate is I keep getting tailgated all the time because people want to take a picture of it. I can't imagine. You, know? oh, so, you really are good at marketing. Oh, that is too funny. <laughs> anyway, it's just it's a sorry. Word. Well, you have been just such an awesome guest, Mr. Thank Sports. We really, a lot of fun, really do appreciate right. you coming on and joining us. Um, All right. Well, I look forward to good luck with it. And, you know, good luck with the show. I felt like you're having a lot of fun doing it yourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Can't thank you enough that. for your time. And hopefully we get the chance to talk again in the future. Okay. Great. Thank Love you the again. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. Okay. Impressive. Man. Impressive guest. He's cool. That Man. was... Another industry big shot here on the Crunchcast. God, that's a cool job. So cool. We've had some awesome people on from the you know filmmaking standpoint, actors, people in front of the camera, people behind the camera, but no one from marketing. And that really just like, it's, Gets it's a, a scratch I had. Yeah. Drives the ship. That was good. That was really cool. And we got some really fun episodes on deck. The deadline to enter for the 8080 Dream Car Giveaway number 44 for a McLaren 600LT plus $60,000 in cash is coming up on May 2nd. For a limited time, they're offering double the entries, meaning every dollar you spend now gives you not one, but two entries. You should be shopping here anyway. 8080 was one of our favorite brands before we were in cahoots. But the fact that you could actually win cash in cars for shopping there, it is a big pile of no-brainer. So is visiting somethingcrunchy.com, where you will find every episode, our links for social media, and the Almighty Crunch Store, where you will find all kinds of crunchy gear showing that you are a proud citizen of Crunch Nation. Don't hesitate to walk through the beaded curtain and check out the Something Crunchy <laughs> Facebook group, where you'll have so much fun you'll need a shower after. Don't hold me. <laughs> this has been another episode of Something Crunchy, and as always, don't ever forget to live your crunchiest life. And be crunchy to one another. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, follow, and all that crunchy good shit. Thank you for listening. Yeah, that's, that's a soundbite we're going to keep. <laughs> <laughs>